a scripture reading from Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. My name is Damien, and I'm the senior pastor here. It's been a couple of weeks since I have preached. I'm grateful for other gifted preachers in our congregation, but I must say uh, it's good to be back in the pulpit. Every week I get the opportunity and privilege to preach. I'm reminded of the fact that it is truly a privilege, and so I'm grateful to be back up here. As Ben mentioned, we are in a series in Ephesians walking through the book passage by passage. And actually in chapter 4, we're making a transition and it's cued to us with the word therefore. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So commentators will point out that in the book of Ephesians, we're making a turn into the re- from now until the rest of the book a season or so of exhortation. So Paul is now going to exhort us in a way that it could be described as he's going to exhort us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Now he's going to do that in lots of ways. Today we're going to see he's going to do that talking about the character of the called as well as the unity of the called. But he's also going to talk about relationships and he's going to talk about many things. And as Mike mentioned, he's going to get all up in our business from now until the end of uh, Ephesians. I love what Ben shared in the call to worship today. Um, The idea of walking worthily or appraisal language. Imagine if, if you, just to pick up on what Ben said, imagine if you thought your house, let's just use round numbers, was worth $100,000 and someone comes to you and appraises your house and says it's worth $10,000. That would not be fitting, correct? Right? There, would be, there would be discontinuity between what you thought something was worth and what it was appraised at. There's always a bit of disequilibration, a, a bit of confusion when we expect one thing because it seems fitting to us and we receive another thing. Have you ever talked to someone who tells you they're so sad, but they do it with a smile on their face? It's like, I'm so sad right now. You're like, you don't look sad. It's really confusing to me. Or someone says they're really excited, but they don't look excited. There's something in us that says that's not right. I remember, this will tell you a little bit about my character, at least when I was 10. I remember I'm the oldest of four. The next one is seven years younger, then 10 years younger, then 11 years younger. So I had plenty of years to torment my siblings. And one of the things that I would do when they were babies is I would look at them and with a smile on my face and tell them how ugly they were. (laughs) And they would smile and coo. And then I would look at them with a scowl on my face and tell them they were my favorite brother or sister because I ended up having a sister. And they would just smile, right? And, and when my, my parents did not think that was amusing. But what I found, the reason I found it to be amusing was because the discontinuity between the words that I was saying and the tone of voice I was using. You see, even a baby knows they're supposed to go together. 
right? Even if they don't understand why, they understand if I have a scowl, they should be afraid. If I have a smile, they should be happy. And so there's a, there's a fitting reality to life and there's a fitting response to something. And what Paul is saying is, I've been telling you all about all that God has done. Now let me spend the rest of our time together in this letter telling you about the fitting response to all that God has done. And that's what he means by walking worthily. But if we're honest with ourselves, at times, every single one of us loses sight of our fitting response to the hope we have in Christ. Don't we? For some of us, the reason we lose sight of it is because we're wrapped up in a season of great success in our life. And sometimes success can bring with it a loss of our dependence, at least our understanding, our awareness of our dependence upon our God. God is our creator. God is our sustainer. For some of us, it's times of great suffering and anxiety. When we find ourselves in those places, we lose sight of God, our savior, God, our redeemer. And for some of us, if we're just frank and candid, life right now seems pretty mundane and we've lost sight of the majesty of who God is because life just seems to sort of happen one day, then the next day, then the next day, and we lose the wonder of it all. We lose the majesty that Paul has put on display for us in the first three chapters of this letter. So in chapter four, Paul will begin this exhortation and it's gonna be broken into different sections. One section is verses one through 16 and we're gonna take one through six today. And what Paul really wants to first tell us about what it means to walk in a manner that's fitting to what God has done is he wants to tell us in the next two weeks, God has called his people to be holy and God has called his people to be unified. God has called his people to be holy and to be unified. And so what we don't want to lose is the fact that God has called his people. And so in both points that I'm going to take us through today, the calledness of God on our lives, that God has called us to himself, is at the center. And so that's why the first point, which I know is up there, is the character of the called. Now, if we're going to talk about calling, it's always good to remind ourselves that primarily when the Bible uses the word calling, it has in mind the fact that God has called us to himself. God has called a people. He's making a people in the world to be with him and to be his people. And as we've heard over the last few weeks, and as we're reading in CBR, particularly right now in the gospel of Mark, there's this remarkable vision that we're given of God's interaction with his people. God's interaction with us in Christ, that God has called us to himself, but in order for him to call us to himself, we must be pursued by him. And in his pursuing of us, we see all these amazing things, don't we? We see God's patience for us. Just think about Jesus with his disciples in the gospel of Mark. If we're not careful, we can be frustrated with the disciples, can't we? I mean, we, we get the, the overarching picture of what's happening in the gospel of Mark. And we think, could you really ask that right now? Why would you even ask that right now? And yet Jesus is patient. And anything that Jesus says that we might see as sort of edgy or direct is always the right thing in that moment. It's always for their good. And we see Jesus with great patience and with great kindness. And as I read the Bible and as I grow in my Christian faith, what's interesting is I realize I used to be surprised that more people weren't Christians. 
I used to be surprised when I first became a Christian. I would think, don't they see? Don't they see this is the most coherent way to live your life? Don't they see that the Christian worldview is the most obvious worldview, right? I mean, I had all these thoughts. And now, actually, the longer I am walking with Jesus, the less I'm surprised that other people aren't Christians and the more I'm surprised that I am. The more I'm surprised that God opened my eyes. The more I'm surprised that God's gentleness towards me when I was his enemy, that he regenerated my heart and that it came alive, that he gave me eyes to see and that I saw Jesus as worthy, that I saw Jesus as worth giving my life to. And I found him as worth following, not because of the things that he gave me, but because of him. I wanted him. And for any of us, who find ourselves following Jesus mainly because it seems right and good and convenient, we might not be Christians. You see, we follow Jesus because he's beautiful, because he's worth it. And when we begin to see this, as Paul has tried to put on display for us, what actually happens is we begin to be formed into a certain type of people, a type of people that's fitting to the call that God has given us. And that's what I want to look at. I want to look at these virtues in verse 2. Right? So we're to walk in a manner or fitting of the calling to which we've been called. And then he starts to unpack that. What is fitting for the Christian life? Well, he says humility and gentleness, patience and love. They sort of go together, but there are four of them. So let's take the first two, humility and gentleness. It's important to know that humility was actually a despised characteristic in the Greek world. This Greek word for humility, many people will point out that the Greeks never used it in a context of approval. They always used it to describe the submissiveness of a slave. And yet Jesus displays the beauty of true humility. And this virtue actually becomes indispensable to the Christian life. Jesus likens those who will inherit the kingdom as a child, faith like a child. There's this genuine humility. And humility really requires two things. It requires a proper view of ourself and it requires a proper view of God. And if you think about those two long enough, you can't really separate them. When you try to, they sort of go back together. It's like, okay, self, God, no, they come back together. And the reason is because when we see ourselves properly, we see ourselves as creatures. We see ourselves as owned by God, created by God. And when we see ourselves as creatures, we will relate to God as a creature and him as creator. And those who are in Christ, actually, as our recreator. Remember, we, were re- we rejected our creator, Romans tells us. Paul, the apostle Paul tells us in Romans. And now yet in Christ, we've been remade and recreated. And so we, we come to God as creator, humbled because of our place. And then we come to God as recreator, humbled but grateful because of our place. And you see, humility, when understood, belongs in any conversation having to do with unity. And the reason is, is because humility promotes true unity. When we see ourselves as creatures of God alongside other creatures of God, we see them with respect because they too are creatures just like us. They have dignity and worth. John Stott reminds us 
that it is pride that actually lurks behind discord. You see, when there's discord, there's pride somewhere. And so with true humility, disagreement or differing views, which are legitimate, if you're you're humble in your disagreement, it can lead to curiosity and dialogue. But if you're prideful, you're lacking humility, you have a puffed up view of yourself, it cannot lead to curiosity. It can only lead to cutting those people off, cutting their views off, which is functionally cutting them off. Now, I, I, I can't even hear you. And we just turn inward on ourselves. And so humility is a proper view of ourself before God. But then there's also this, this tandem word that goes together with it conceptually. And that is this word he uses for gentleness. So somehow to walk in a manner that's fitting to our calling is to walk with humility, but also gentleness. You could also translate this word as meekness. Meekness, and, and some do. Meekness or gentleness oftentimes are confused with what? Weakness. You've heard it before. Meekness is not weakness. That's what you'll hear. And it, that's true. It's not. Moses was said to be the most meek man on the face of the earth. And of course, Jesus famously says that the meek will inherit the earth. Interestingly, when we think about this virtue of meekness, Aristotle, the philosopher, was very fond of this virtue. And the reason was is because he hated extremes. He desired what he called the the golden mean. So he saw this particular word, this virtue of meekness, as a quality of moderation. Because on one side, you had a person who gets too angry over things. And on this side, you had a person who doesn't get angry at all. And so Aristotle said, meekness is the third way. A person who gets angry at the right time for the right reasons. But a person who's not meek, a person who's arrogant, is angry every time they're crossed because they take it personally, because they think they should be right, because they think that they are better than the other person. You see, meekness is actually, it requires strength to be meek. Because when you realize your strength, when you realize the power that you have as an agent in this world, you then move towards this quality of meekness where you can have a strong personality, but you're nevertheless master over it. To say it another way, meekness is the absence of this disposition to assert your personal rights upon others. You could, but you don't. You could, but it wouldn't be fitting because it wouldn't be right and good and loving to the other person. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul's writing to the Corinthians. Go back, if you haven't read it in a while, very interesting things happening in that church. He writes a letter and he, Paul had the right to come down on them. Paul had the right to cut them to the heart with sharp words. But what Paul says is, I came to you in gentleness or meekness. I came to you utilizing my power and authority for your good. Think of all the awesome blog posts and tweets that he could have leveraged against the Corinthians. And he didn't. And in fact, years later, he tells Timothy, he's still still in line with this. He tells Timothy, listen, Timothy, correct your opponents with gentleness or meekness. Same word. When I think about meekness, 
and its role with humility, I think about a puppy fighting or trying to fight a grown dog. Think about this. Think about uh, a puppy trying to yap and nip and bite and growl at a full-grown dog. It's so annoying to watch in a sense because it, it stops being cute at some point. It's really cute and then it stops being cute and then you're angry at the puppy for the dog that's trying to sleep and the puppy will not get off of the dog. And the puppy keeps going after the dog and after the dog and you're just waiting with one turn and open of the jaw for the puppy to be crushed. You're just waiting for it. And it never happens. Now, could it happen? Absolutely it could happen. That dog could destroy that puppy in a second. And yet the dog doesn't. Why? It's a picture of meekness. It's a picture of being able to use one's power to harm the other person, but not. Now, though, try to mess with the puppy while the puppy's attacking the dog. If some type of danger comes at the puppy, that grown dog will come to life and growl and pursue and protect. You see that? You see that picture? That's kind of like meekness. Meekness is the the mastery by God where one is so mastered by God that we leverage our power only for the good of others and not for our own selfishness or feeling better about ourselves. And then these last two, patience and love. Patience is the quality of forbearance and self-control, which shows itself particularly willing to wait upon God and his will. Think of Paul, he's in prison. He's in prison. He's chained. We've been talking about this. And yet he's urging these Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And he doesn't say, look at me, but he does invite us to consider his position. Does he not? The patience that Paul had waiting for God's will to be done, waiting for justice, waiting to be released from this prison. And so believers, we are called upon to be patient in our expectations of God's actions and in this context particularly to be patient in our relationship with one another. As I walk with many of you and as I just experience life, there's a sense in which when we find ourselves in challenging situations, we don't know why for a while. We're not quite sure why our relationship with our spouse or with a friend or with a family member is in the place where it is. We, we're not sure why God would allow this to happen for so long. And, and that's a painful place to be in. And we're walking this out. And hopefully we're walking it out with others. And then there's this, this change that happens. It's somehow we get this flash of insight about some reasons why we might be in this dysfunction in our relationship. We, we find something that we may have contributed or that the other person is willing to admit that they contributed to this confusion, to this toxicity of relationship. And in that moment, we are tempted to think that that insight equals transformation. But it doesn't. Insight is not transformation. A realization is not transformation. It can be transformative. 
It can begin the journey of repentance and of healing and turning to Jesus. And so why, how does this fit with patience? What I'm calling you to do from this passage, which the goal of this passage is unity and holiness, is that unity and holiness has to exist in our personal relationships before we can begin to talk about some grandiose vision of a unified church. Right? It's not contingent upon that, but certainly if we're going to walk in a manner that's fitting to the calling to which we've been called, we will pay attention to every single one of our relationships. We will realize that if it took us years in our marriage to get to this particular place, if it took us years in your relationship with your sibling or a friend to get to this particular place of dysfunction, once you realize you're there, do you expect it to just change? Sometimes it does. It really does. So I want to say yes. And if it doesn't, the call on the Christian life is patience. It's to trust God. Patience is not checking out. It's not some, commit, some uh, disposition towards fate or fatalism. Patience is an active reality. It's a trusting in God. It's, it's praying. It's crying out. It's relying upon. It's confessing sin. It's all of these things. And yet, it is patience. And then patience is, of course, both practiced towards God and towards the other person, which requires love. And that's what he says. He says, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You see, love is burden-bearing. We have sort of bought into this idea that love is easy, love comes naturally, and that love can be um, uh, driven by comfort, by uh, a fittingness, when in reality, those are seasons of love towards one another. But in fact, love is something else. Love is a willingness, it's a commitment to pursue the good of those you might not even like, which is why Jesus can tell us to love our enemies. And most of us don't even love each other like Jesus tells us to love our enemies, if we're honest. We don't love our kids that way, we don't love our, our spouses that way, we don't love each other that way. And so patience requires the burden-bearing of love. That's challenging. That's very challenging. So when I say it like that, why are these good news? I mean, if we're really honest with ourselves, when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, why are these good news? Why are these virtues good news to you and me? They sound hard. They sound challenging. And I could say a lot of things, but I'll just say three things under one umbrella. The umbrella is these virtues are an invitation to be truly human. Okay? It's an invitation to live wholly before God and others. And therefore, if it's an invitation to be truly human, it's an invitation to freedom. Imagine this. Imagine if you were humble and meek and patient and bearing with others in love. You no longer would have to be right all the time. That would be so freeing. And that's good news because you're probably not right as often as you think you are. 
So it's actually an invitation into reality. Another reason is you no longer have to get so offended or angry when you feel that you've been violated. Now, again, this is not a call to roll over. It's not a call to ignore justice. I'm talking about the everyday simple things. You and I are so easily offended, aren't we? Don't we get offended so easily? But if we could embrace the goodness of these and trust God and be patient with him working them in us, we will find increasingly that we will be offended less often by the snide remark or the cross look. And I think it's also, and this might surprise you, an invitation to feel more deeply, not less deeply. You see, we don't become less angry or less offended or less sad by stuffing our emotions. That's not Christianity. Most of you were taught it was. I get that. Most of you feel more comfortable cutting this part of your body off and living in this part of your body. I get that. Especially people like us. I won't say anything else. It's people like us. But look at the Psalms. Look at the psalmist. Watch the psalmist deal with his own anger, his own frustration at the brokenness of relationships, at being crossed, at having true enemies. Look at the way that he cries out to God, saying things that you and I would probably find ourselves blushing if we actually were to say out loud to another person, much less God. And yet he does it and he cries out to God, making his deep emotions known, knowing that taking them to God is his only chance of being healed, his only chance of transformation, and his only chance of a proper perspective on the situation. You could also just look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Watch Jesus feel more deeply than you and I can imagine. Watch him I wonder, where do you think Paul gets the idea of, of rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep? Who is in his mind? I, it's got to be Jesus. Jesus who deeply weeps at a, at, at a funeral. He wept bitterly at the brokenness of the world. He didn't just stuff it and say, nah, I'm going to raise this guy from the dead. No, he wept bitterly. What about when his meekness is properly channeled towards righteous indignation, turning over tables in the temple? But he's not mastered by his emotions. You see, emotions make really bad masters, but they make really good indicators. Think of a dashboard light. Something's happening here. Something's off here. Something's wrong here. And you see, an invitation to these virtues is not an invitation to short-circuit what you feel. It's an invitation to understand what to do with what you feel and to pursue this transformation of life. So in, that's one verse, by the way. Verse two. Now, let's go a little faster and look at not just the character of the call, but also the unity of the call. Paul is saying that these realities make up the character of the one people of God. If you look in verse 3, he says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. I just want to point out one thing, and that is, whatever else I say, don't hear me saying, try not to hear me saying, we should pursue unity. Paul actually says, in Christ, there is unity. God has already done that. He's saying, be eager to maintain what God has already done. God has already made us one in Christ. Now, a proper fitting response is to live as though that were true. And then he tells us where unity is rooted in. It's it's rooted in the oneness of God. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You don't have to count them. I counted them. There are seven. Seven times he says one. You see, we can now understand that the virtues of the character of the called are fundamental to this part of the exhortation. You see, unity is possible because of the one God and because of the three persons in the one God, we'll see next week that diversity is possible even in the midst of unity. Next week, I'll say there's, there are multiple gifts and we use all of these diverse gifts to build up one body of Christ. But today he wants to root us in that theology. And he basically says this, I'll sum it up. There is one body because there is one spirit. There is one hope, faith, and baptism because there's one Lord. And there's one Christian family because there's one father. There's one body because there's one spirit. How can one body have more than one animating spirit? It doesn't. There's one hope, faith, and baptism because there's one Lord. And there's one Christian family because there is one father. Now, two quick applications. This unity I've already alluded to must start in the local church. So I want to ask us, how do we practice these things more robustly? Are we at New City just to assume that because there may not be currently quarrels and fire and fires to put out, that somehow we've arrived at unity? No, we haven't. We have not arrived at unity. Unity is more than coexisting. Now, the good news is we're doing more than that. We're doing better than that. Okay, I actually see increased unity in our congregation, and it's a beautiful thing. But I do want us to set our sights higher, our imaginations captured, as we heard last week, of what kind of unity is possible in the body of Christ. So I know that some people grew up in a house where you didn't talk about disagreement, you feigned unity, peace was cheap and artificial, Others of you experience unity as basically submitting to the person who is the loudest and the scariest and the one in charge. We're not going to do those things here. The loudest person does not win here. Others of you experience unity as submitting to the one who had the authority or the one who was passive aggressive. I don't want that to be true here. On the one hand, the person with the power and the authority can make you physically pay for not submitting. On the other hand, the person can make you emotionally pay for not submitting. But in a family where we bring increasing humility and meekness and patience and love, all voices are heard, all voices are listened to, all perspectives are cultivated prayerfully towards our one hope. And of course, this should create in us a longing for partnerships with other churches. It really should. 
And part of my job is to create that longing in you and then to go cultivate those partnerships. And increasingly, that is something we must do at New City. And I want to end here. You could walk away from this passage defeated. You could walk away from this passage saying, I am not living a life that's worthy of my calling. And I would say, me neither. Me neither. But here is the beauty of the gospel. Let's go back and read verse 1 and 2 again more carefully. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You see, our calling, our right standing before God is not based on our current virtue. God didn't come choose us because we were virtuous. He called us first to himself. You see that? You have been called. Now that you've been called, now that you're secure, now that God is your father, now that his presence is in you, now the fitting response is to become like him. And so know there's freedom there. Know that when God called you to himself, he called you despite where you were, but he's not going to leave us where we were. He's going to continue to grow us. And that's freedom. And that's goodness. And that's faith in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now in different places, different levels of trust in you. And I pray that you would help each one of us see wherever we are in our faith journeys that the strength of our faith is not where our security is found, but the object of our faith is where our security is found. And Jesus, we trust you. You are the only good one, the only righteous one. You are our only hope. And we ask now that as we behold you, as we see you, as we reflect on your work that you've done in our life, that we would increasingly become more like these virtuous characteristics that we see in you and that Paul describes. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.